last week we talked a bit about the idea of regeneration. And I do want to spend just a little bit of time reviewing some of the things that uh, we uh, uh, we talked about last time. And uh, uh, specifically here, I want to talk about how what how does what does some, what was what does one need to do in order to be regenerated? Let me that, that, ask that first. So if you need to speak, uh, why uh, unmute yourself and then uh, give an answer to that question. What what does one need to do in order to be regenerated? Well, God's got to do it. Okay, that's the right answer. Um, it's a trick question, right? If it was a true-false question, you wouldn't have known what to do with it, right? So, yes, there's nothing you can do in order to earn some, uh, regeneration, to make it happen. Uh, in fact, it is regeneration that causes you to respond, not your act, not your, uh, not your faith that causes regeneration. Now, of course, one must be exposed to the gospel in order for regeneration to occur, because as we saw, regeneration always takes place in conjunction with the gospel preached. Uh, but there's actually nothing you can do to anticipate regeneration any more than there is anything you could do to anticipate your physical birth, uh, which, of course, you simply received from your parents. Uh, you didn't do anything to earn or, or, or receive. So what are the results, then, of regeneration? Give, give me some, some things that happen as a result of regeneration. should be re- repentance. I'm sorry? Repentance. Okay, so it, we we are we are caused to repent. We're given a new nature. Okay, so given a new nature, what does what's that mean? Um, we're we're able to exercise faith in coming to to Christ. Right, right. So, and that, and that's where Sharon's answer comes in. So, because we are regenerate, we are no longer. Totally depraved, right? Okay. Doesn't mean that we're not sinners any longer or that sin does not still exercise influence on us, but we are capable now of pleasing God because we have a new nature. We have a new mind. We have new affections. You know, we are, we are inclined towards God. We are inclined away from sin. It doesn't mean that we always reject sin or always are, are, you know, in lockstep with what God wants of us, but we are made capable of pleasing God. That's a, it's, it's, regeneration is the, is the un, unsung part of salvation. And I think we want to make sure that we don't lose sight of the fact that, yeah, we talk about justification. God does it all, right? You know, God does it all and we don't participate in it. He just declares us righteous. Uh, and then, and then comes regeneration. Regeneration, we don't do anything to receive either, but once we do receive it, there's a response that we are, that we are enabled to make, and in fact, are insured to make because of the efficacious call. It is efficacious. Once God regenerates us, then we necessarily respond and joyfully respond, and we, because we have a new will. We have a will that's inclined towards God, inclined towards obedience, and we naturally believe, we naturally repent, and and we advance in holiness, okay? So that brings us then to our topic for the night, which is definitive sanctification. 
I got to get here on my page here. So it's on page 27. Definitive sanctification. And uh, oftentimes we talk about uh, the, the past, past, present, and future of regeneration, and we're going to do that tonight. We're talking about the past part of it tonight, but I'm not going to use the standard name uh, that uh, a lot of folks give to it, which is positional sanctification, because it's more than just a position. It, it's not just that we are reclassified as saints, but we are actually rendered holy in some sense, not perfectly holy. I mean, so oftentimes there's, we have this all or nothing kind of idea about, uh, about the sanctification. We are rendered holy. We have this seed of holiness implanted. We have, we are, and we are, we begin progressing in holiness. We're not perfect in this life, but something did happen and it's more than just a reclassification in a new position, we are actually new creatures in Christ. So what is definitive sanctification? Well, I've defined it here on page 27 as that instantaneous act whereby an individual is set apart to God and makes a decisive breach with his slavery to sin and his liability to penalty for sin. Okay. Now, we want to back up and make sure we understand what we mean by sanctification. That, that word simply means to set apart. Uh, so uh, we have sort of have to fill in the gap. In what way are we set apart? We normally think of sanctification as the post-conversion process of being gradually and progressively set apart for for God, growing in Christ's likeness. And in fact, the majority of biblical references to sanctification are of the progressive variety. Okay? And we're going to spend some time later on talking about progressive sanctification. But we need to know what the root of progressive uh, sanctification is before we get to it. Okay, So we are not just being sanctified. There is a sense in which we can say we have been sanctified and have been made saints. Okay, Because there are several passages that speak of sanctification as a completed event. 1 Corinthians 6.11, you have been washed, you have been sanctified. Okay, so past tense. Something happened and you have been set apart to God. And it makes us new people. We are now saints. So as you can see here, we're going to tie this together with regeneration. Uh, we, we should think of definitive sanctification as the flip side of regeneration. We have been made new creatures in Christ. So something new has sprung into being. Something new has, has emerged. And something old has passed away. The old is gone. The new has come. And so what we've got to do is tease out what it is that is gone and what it is that has come. Okay. Let's start here with some key, key texts that speak about this idea of definitive sanctification. Uh, probably one of the, uh, the biggest, the most important text really in the, in the scriptures on definitive sanctification is in Romans chapter six. Uh, really it's, much of the entire chapter is given over to this idea, but I'm, I'm going to at least give you some excerpts from that. Paul says here, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you know, no, not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death 
so that as just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Sin is no longer your master. You are not under the law, but under grace. So, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Uh, now, this this passage here, uh, Romans 6, comes on the on the heels of the great chapter on justification. Chapter 5 is given over to our justification, really much of chapter 4 and chapter 5, but chapter 5 is probably the one that we we tend to think of as the great justification chapter in the uh, the book of Romans. And we find here in in Romans 5 uh, that there's, you know, we, we are in this case reclassified. We have received the righteousness of God imputed to our accounts. And also we find that the the sin that we had has been imputed to Jesus Christ, who then took that and died bearing, bearing our sin, receiving in himself the penalty for our sin, and leaving us in a state not merely of, of, of neutrality, but positive righteousness. We've received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is anticipating here is that someone might say, okay, I didn't have to do anything. I received all these things from Jesus Christ, and now I'm in. You know, I didn't have to do anything. I don't have to do anything. And so chapter 6 begins with this question. Shall we just continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay, that, that, and that's, that's the question here. So should we just, you know, if in fact God receives great glory because he has saved a wretched sinner like me, couldn't I actually make things better by becoming more wretched so that grace may abound? How, shall we not keep on sinning that grace may abound? Okay. And so that's the question that starts here. And then chapter 6 verse 2 here is the start of Paul's answer. No. God forbid. Never. May it never be. Because we died to sin, so we cannot continue to live in it. And so he's turned the corner here, and rather than speaking strictly of justification, he now starts speaking of the fact that we have been rendered saints. We have been sanctified. We have been regenerated. And one of the great benefits of that is that we have died to sin. Death is the key word in the first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6. The word death, dead, die, uh, crucified, or some sort of synonym for death appears 17 times in 14 verses. Okay, that, that, This is the theme of Romans 6, 1 through 7, uh, run through 14. We died. We died. He says it more than once a verse, right? You died, you died, you died, you died. And this is what we mean by definitive sanctification. You died. You died to the mastery, uh, uh, the uh, 
the incredible hold that sin had on you as a totally depraved being such that you were incapable of pleasing God, you died to that. You no longer have sin as your master. doesn't mean that sin has disappeared, but you have a new master. In fact, that's the last line, right? You, you become slaves of righteousness. So you're always a slave. Your nature is always enslaved to do something. It's the, it's the nature of things. Uh, we are always inclined uh, to do something, okay? We were previously inclined to to sin relentlessly. But now we have a new inclination within us. We have a new nature. We have become slaves of righteousness. And so our body of sin has been done away with, and we are capable now of pleasing God, which is why the answer is, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, because along with your justification, where you've been reclassified as a new creature in Christ and have been given the imputed righteousness of Christ, he also implanted in you the seed of righteousness, which now you cultivate. You cultivate that by living in a new way. So you live in newness of life. So we have been buried with Christ into death and raised to walk here in newness of life. And that's progressive sanctification. But at the root is our definitive sanctification. Uh, Romans 7 also speaks to, uh, to definitive sanctification. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that we might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we may serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Okay, So we were at one time enslaved, not not so much to the law of Moses, although that's part of it here, okay? We have this law of sin and death that just was an albatross around our neck. We couldn't do what we needed to do in order to please God and and just try as we might, and we didn't try all that hard, try as we might, we could not possibly could not possibly do all that God expected of us but we just kept going around and around and of course we're reminded of poor Martin Luther there in the uh, in the in the in the monastery beating himself trying to to get himself to the place where he could be accepted by God but the law was this albatross against his around his neck and he could never do anything finally he's liberated here he's liberated he dies to the law through the body of Christ, and we're joined now. So we are joined now to another, that is to Christ, who raised him from the dead, and so we've been united with him. And we talked about the, the double benefit of union with Christ, part of which is justification, but the other part is that we've been regenerated. We're new creatures in Christ. There's an experience, a new experience that we have. So we've been so we've been connected with Jesus Christ, and now we are no longer a slave to the sinful passions. We've been released from our bondage to the law, having died to that by which we were bound. We're no longer depraved. That's a code there. We're no longer depraved. Now we can serve 
in the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. Okay. First uh, Peter two speaks also to definitive sanctification. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Okay. And so here, if, if, if you, if you, if you just stop, uh, with the statements, uh, you know, Christ died on the cross and took away all of our sin and that's where we end, we miss half of salvation. We, we, we miss the fact that he's made us new. And this newness is a, is a marvelous and a, and a beautiful thing. Uh, we are capable now of pleasing God. We've died to the, to the, uh, to our slavery to sin and now we can live righteous lives. And then we're encouraged to do so. So any, any questions right up here, right up front as far as, uh, what definitive sanctification is? Uh, I have a, a, a question about, uh, the phrase, the body of sin done away with. Mm-hmm. Now, what exactly, when it says the body of sin, yeah. is that our Adamic nature? And if it is, how is it done away with? Because we still have okay. believers, we still have the Adamic nature, we still have the ability to sin, but but uh, what does that mean? The body of sin done away with, and what? What first of all, what is the body of sin? Yeah, I think in context, the uh, the body of sin is our slavery to sin. So, so the the fact, that, so so if I can put it this way, it's our total depravity. What we were in Adam, totally depraved beings, we no longer are. Doesn't mean we're not sinners. And can't sin, but we are new creatures. The old man has died. The new man has sprung to life. Now we're going to actually talk about uh, there. There are there are two expressions in Scripture that I think uh, sometimes get confused. There's old man, and there's the idea of an old nature, and I don't think they're the same thing. Consistently, we find that the old man is dead. In fact, we're going to look at several of these coming up here. The old man is dead. You know, he's, he's dead and gone. Something has, something has died. Something has sprung to life. So the old man is gone. The new man has sprung to life. Nonetheless, we recognize that something remains. And uh, the Puritans used to, to speak of this as the remnants of sin. They were not, they were not willing to speak of, uh, the, uh, the new man as somehow competing with an equal, equally powerful or corresponding old man, okay? You are a new man, you have remnants of sin, okay? It's not that you are a new man and an old man in some sort of a schizophrenic sense, and sometimes the old man wins, sometimes the new man wins. The, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Puritans always spoke of, you are a new man, Nonetheless, there are these under underlying remnants of sin, and I think that's a better picture of, of what's going on in the in the in the Christian walk. You have the capacity now; in fact, you have the inclination now towards righteousness. Okay, and so you're you're mortifying then the deeds of the body. So you're you're putting to death that. But we should not think of somehow that we're that. that you know, you got a white dog and a black dog on your shoulder and you listen to one or the other at some time and they've, they've got equal sway. Uh, the new, 
the, the new creation, the regeneration, and definitive sanctification are very powerful things. And uh, they enabled us then to overcome uh, the sin. Yeah, go ahead. Now, mortifying, mortifying the flesh, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak. Now, basically, doesn't that boil down to just saying no to sin? Yes, uh, but I think there's, it's perhaps a little bit more than that. Because, because you can mortify is put to death. We can't physic, there's nothing physical we can put to death. We can't right. put ourselves to death physically. What does it mean? It means, yeah, well, it's, it, you're right. It, it means to say no, uh, to the impulses to sin. But it's more than just saying no and it comes keeps coming back there 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 should be progress made and and you know it's one of those things that over the course of a of, of christian life you know it's 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 been said sometimes that uh the, the christian the christian walk and and christian progress sanctification is measured in decades not in weeks yeah and 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 because you know you, you often don't see the progress uh, when you're in the midst of it. In fact, you know, we all know that the progress of sanctification is some up and some down, some up and some down. Now, the trajectory incrementally is up, but so often we make steps back. But as you look over the course of your life, your Christian life, and and some of you have been believers a long time, and so you can look back and say, you know, there's been remarkable progress. You know, now that now that I can look back over my whole life, I'm not perfect. I'm not, I'm not where I need to be, uh, but I'm not where I was. And 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 it's a joyful thing to be able to say that. You know, there are some sins that I used to struggle with, and you know, I just haven't really even thought about them in years, because there is a mortification, actually a a killing off of some of these. Temptations, and as you grow in Christ likeness, there's that. That's why we call it progressive sanctification. You're actually making progress, and so yes, mortification is saying no, but it's more the idea of saying no over the course of time until it becomes habit, and habit then becomes character. And so, and so it's, I don't know if that that helps to say so. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't you say that? That also sin involves our thoughts. Sure. And we can always stop actions, but that to me it's a step further to control the sin at the thought level. It is. You're right. And I think what ends up happening is as, you know, as, as a believer, what tends, tends to happen is you, you, you conquer or, you know, get a modicum of victory over a specific sin. And then what emerges is, you know, there's other underlying sins that I still need to work on. Okay. And so, so we end up, you know, turning now to addressing new sins. And, uh, you know, like you say, ones that are a little bit harder to, to gauge, you know, I'm no longer actively, you know, I'm no longer hating. I'm, I'm no longer having fights with my brother and, and I'm not killing people, but I still hate them. I still envy. And so now we've turned from the more overt sins and we, we turn to the more covert sins, but, but the process is the same. There still needs to be progress. And the fact is, no matter how much progress you make, the more you discover there is to 
to to address. At the same time, you're becoming more and more and more like Christ at each step along the way. There's progress. It's and, and again, that's that's oftentimes the idea in 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 Keswick theology, the idea of let go and let God. I don't actually make any progress. Okay, I, I, you know, it's it's just a matter of sort of getting my hands off and maybe and and uh, as long as I do nothing, then things are okay. But it's more than just doing nothing. It's actually advancing in Christ likeness and God has enabled us to do that. Okay then. Well, let's move here to some misunderstandings about this and uh and a couple of things I want to address from these passages that we looked at uh, because there's there's some confusion that occurs uh and I've got four items here uh, that we need to make sure we We've addressed some of these already here. But the first I want to say is the dispensational change view. And you say, what does dispensationalism have to do with any of this? Well, as we read along in Romans 6 and 7, we saw some references here to the fact that we are no longer under the law. We're no longer in-lawed to the law, but we are instead in-lawed to Christ. Okay, So we serve a new master, uh, the master used to be sin, now our master is Christ, so this, this malevolent master has been replaced by a benevolent master. And so we are no longer under law, but under grace. And uh, sometimes that has been uh, a confusion for dispensationalists, uh, because we talk about the Old Testament as the dispensation of law, and sometimes we speak of the dispensation of the church as the dispensation of grace. I think sometimes people imagine, okay, in the Old Testament, people had to work for their, their salvation. It was a, it was a, it was a, a drudgery of a time. People were trying and failing and trying and failing. But now we're under grace, uh, because we have Jesus Christ. But I don't think that's the point that's being made here. Uh, the, really, I think, uh, the Old Testament saint could talk about being under law and under grace in his dispensation as much as the church saint could. Okay. So he's no longer under the law of sin and death, trying to obey the letter, uh, but failing. Uh, but rather even in the old Testament, that person who has been regenerated has a newness of life and he has the ability then uh, to serve God. Okay. And to advance in holiness. And it is a, it is a, it is a it is a manifestation of the grace of God. So there is law in the Old Testament and grace in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there's law and there's grace. Okay, it's not as though we're talking about Old Testament, New Testament here, but rather a state of being. We were under law, that is, we were totally depraved and incapable of pleasing God no matter how much we did. And now we are under grace, that is, we have been recipients of the regenerating and justifying grace of God, and therefore have been rendered capable of pleasing him. And that doesn't change from dispensation to dispensation. It's always been true, and it will remain that way. So uh, when we read this passage, we should not think of this as, as some sort of a difference between Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. Rather, we should think of this as a difference between a depraved, totally depraved sinner and a sinner who has been saved by grace. Okay, so it's, it's, we're, we're talking about more than a dispensational change here. 
A second here, and I've already mentioned here, is this idea of positional sanctification, positional sanctification. I say here, some suggest that initial sanctification can be reduced to a new position. That is, not so much an experience, uh, but a regard as set apart. So God regards us in a new way because we've been justified, but nothing actually happens to us. Okay, uh, this is this is common with what we sometimes call Keswick theology. So when we get saved, we are positionally sanctified, but nothing happens. Okay, and uh, because of that, in Keswick theology, what tends to happen then is say if nothing happens because there's no new experience, then there must be some sort of experience later on down the road. And so in Keswick theology, uh, there's this idea that we flatline for a while until we get to the point of consecration or dedication, and then we start growing in sanctification. But that's not the case, okay? Because when we are saved, it is more than a mere position. It is a new nature and we necessarily begin growing right away. And in fact, if you've been around new believers much, you recognize that some of the most significant growth that takes place, most of them, some of the most visible growth uh, that will ever take place in the life of a, of, a, of, a, of a believer is in that, you know, that first year after they're saved. It's kind of like, you know, a, you know, childhood, you know, last 18 years and then, you know, and uh, and then and then the rest of our life goes. But where's all our growth? Right up front. Now, we tend to have huge growth up front. And if we have someone who is ostensibly born but is not growing at all, then we have reason uh, to question uh, whether salvation has actually occurred. So there's more than just a position, a, a change of our position. It's a new a change of our experience. Okay. And I say here, these passages above clearly indicate that definitive sanctification is experiential. It involves death to sin. There's nothing more experiential than death, right? Uh, something actually happens to believers in regeneration that annuls total depravity, releases him from his bondage to, to sin, and there's just an incredible liberation. True believers are in an actual sense set apart from sin and set apart to God. And so this uh, dispensational understanding or Keswick understanding here uh, pictures the old and new natures as in a seesaw battle for dominance that can be easily as easily lost as one. No real damage has taken place to the old nature, no advantage given to the new. And that's not the correct picture from the scriptures. The old has gone, the new has come. And what remains is not powerful, as powerful as what is in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And I say here, this denial of experiential nature of definitive sanctification leaves the believer with no native mechanism for the conquest of sin. If nothing happened to me, then how am I going to make progress in my sanctification? Well, I really can't. Okay, But something did happen to me. The power of sin has been broken by the power of the indwelling Christ within me. Okay. I am a spirit man. I am, I am, I am, I am a man made new or a woman made new. Of course, uh, the scriptures always use the male, uh, male, male terms there, but we are men made new. We are people made new. 
Uh, and there is no need for some sort of a second work of grace to jumpstart our sanctification. Uh, we, our sanctification begins immediately. And we should expect that of believers. Uh, and uh, there, there's never a time to be more aggressive in saying, you know, young man, young woman, you've, 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 you've embraced Christ. Now, now put that to work and, 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 and advance in holiness. And, uh, you, you, if you, if you hold that expectation out in front of a new believer, it's amazing how much, how much progress can be made in a very short amount of time. Okay. So any questions about that? I, I know some, uh, this, this idea of positional sanctification is sometimes embedded in our thinking, but, uh, I, I hope we want, I'd like to think we can move away from this term because I, I don't think it's quite accurate of what's uh, what's going on in the uh, in you know in, the, in our in our in our new life. Any thoughts or questions on that? Well, another concern then is the idea of perfectionism. Okay, again, there's sometimes there's this uh, all or nothing uh, mentality that we have. In fact, I'm just thinking about that today. Um, you know, there's this uh, thinking in sort of our our political situation that we're in, and everybody there's there seems to be this sense of all or nothing, you know, and uh, you know perhaps we as Christians are a little bit disappointed here, or or perhaps not, uh, depending on on where you're where you're coming from uh, with the with the latest election. We and and we recognize that something is slipping away, and that is the the ascendancy of of the Christian community. We no longer get the respect that we once, once, once had, uh, the, uh, the, the, the America that was built in many senses on, on American values, uh, excuse me, Christian values is slipping away. And we, we find that our voices are not heard or if they are, uh, they're rebuffed. And so our tendency, I think is to say, okay, if we can't win, then we're going to withdraw. It's one or the other. We're either, we've either got to be winning in our culture or else we're going to withdraw from our culture. And quite frankly, most of our life has lived somewhere in between, right? Okay. Where, where, you know, we, we have some influence. Uh, we're able to be in the world, but not of the world. And, and we're, we're, we're making something of an impact for Jesus Christ, not because we're winning, uh, but because we're faithfully living. Okay, and, and I think this is what sometimes has happens in sanctification as well. The idea, the, the the one idea is that nothing happened that you can do nothing to please God. Now there's there's just nothing you can do, and the opposite is that you can be perfect. And the fact is, you usually live well. You do live all of your life in between those. Okay, you're you've not reached perfection, and you won't. At the same time, that doesn't mean that you're not making any progress at all, because you should be. And uh, there's there's a number within the uh, a number of uh, holiness groups, Quakers, Wesleyans, um, Shakers, other 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 others of these sectarian groups, uh, suggest that de- death to sin, basic to definitive sanctification, implies the possibility of sinlessness in this life. Okay, so the, the idea is that you can be perfect. But John clearly indicates in his epistle that that's not the way it's going to be. You know, if you say that you have no sin, 
then you've deceived yourself, Paul, uh, John says in 1 John 1, and uh, your y- truth is not in you. And then he goes on to say, but if we do confess our sins, and we will sin, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to set us back up again, forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, you know, he, you know, he gets us up, dusts us off, and says, okay, try again. Okay. And, and advance in, in, in like, in, in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Okay. And so it's not perfection that we're looking for, at least not in this life. I mean, the fact is that there is a perfection to be, you know, but it, it, you know, first, first Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 talk about a, an entire sanctification, but it happens when at the coming, at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So there is a, a, an entire sanctification, we can call it, uh, a, a perfection that, that, that it, that we can anticipate, but not in this life. Uh, this is something that we are always striving for, but never achieving in this life. So per- perfection is not, so we, by saying that we're not totally depraved doesn't mean we're perfect. There's, there's a, there's, there's a lot of options in between totally depraved and perfect. And that's where we live. And we're making the slow, long, hard journey from the one to the other. Okay. Number four, another, uh, uh, false idea here, and that is the sin, sinfulness of the physical body view, um, which is a sort of a, a strange little view here that probably wouldn't even have made my notes if it weren't for the fact that this was once taught uh, by John MacArthur. And I should I should qualify. I, I don't actually have that in my notes. I should say at one time taught by John MacArthur. It no longer is. Okay, he's 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 backed away from this view, and, and I and I, I hand it to him. He's uh, he's, there's a few times in his history that that's happened. You know, he's, he's had, you know, sort of a wayward view, but he is set straight. He admits it. And, uh, and, uh, I, I, you know, you can, you can appreciate that in a man like, uh, Dr. MacArthur here. But at one time, he used to teach, uh, that, uh, when you got a new nature, that you were made spiritually new and that the residence of all sin is now in the body. So your body is the, you know, this, this, he takes this, this term flesh literally. Okay. So all sin that we have is lodged in our flesh. And so the spiritual man is basically beating down effectively his own body and the habits and the, uh, and the lusts of the body. Okay. So. Uh, it says here that sin persists in a single aspect of humanity that escapes redemption, the flesh. Sin lingers in the synaptic patterns of the brains. That's why we have bad habits, the ingrained habits of the human body. And we will never be liberated from these until we die. Now, it's true that this theory answers the question, why sometimes Christians sin if they are dead to sin? I think it's got some really significant problems. First. It smacks of platonic dualism, the idea that what is material is bad and what is immaterial is good. And so we're, we're not, we're never good until we finally get rid of our bodies. And that's, I think that's a, that's a false understanding of what's going on. We're going to have bodies in the, uh, in the, in, you know, in the eschaton, in the, in the end times. And that's going to be a good thing. That's, that's part and parcel of what it means to be human is to have a body. It also misunderstands the meaning of flesh in the New Testament. 
this term in all of the scripture passages critical to our discussion are not references to the physical form. But as the NIV consistently translates the term here, the sin nature. I think that's a good translation. Uh, so, so if you have a translation that uses this term flesh routinely, if you can substitute here the sin nature or the remnants of sin, then you, I think you'll have a better sense of what is meant here, uh, when Paul speaks of the flesh. Okay. Mark, 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 you have a key statement there in, uh, 4b. Okay. The term flesh in all the scripture passages critical to this discussion. Correct. That means or that strongly implies that there are some passages where flesh does mean the physical body. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to make sure you meant that. Because there are some passages where it is the physical body, although most of them I think are the sinful nature. Correct. Correct. Yes, absolutely. That is what I intended. It, it is a term that had, you know, you know, terms have a range of meanings and flesh sometimes means flesh, right? You know, right. body, uh, meat. Uh, but sometimes, and I think most of the time, particularly in the theologically important passages here, like these, uh, it has reference here to the sin nature. Okay. Good. Good. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, I think another problem with this view is that it ignores the fact that some of the sins that we continue to deal with are in no way physical in nature. Um, you know, you look through the Ten Commandments, and many of them really have nothing to do with the body per se. Now, some of them do. You know, don't commit adultery. I get it. You know, that that's obviously a sin done in the body. But look at the first four, you know. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so, so the, the first three uh, commands are all talking about idolatry as a sin. Well, idolatry really has nothing to do with the body per se. Honor your father and mother. You know, thou shalt not covet. Well, th- those are not so much things that happen in the flesh as much as they are things that happen in the mind. And so the idea that sin is lodged in the flesh and not in the immaterial doesn't really match reality. And so we shouldn't think of, of, uh, of, of sanctification in those dichotomous kinds of terms. Okay. So instead we should, as we summarize here, what definitive sanctification is, the new creation, which is generated in new, in regeneration, is attended by the corresponding death of the old man. These passages are very clear that we put off the old man and we have put on the new. The old man, properly defined as what we were in Adam, the man of the old age who lives under the tyranny of sin and death, has been crucified, is dead, and is gone. And isn't that a liberating thought? It, I mean, it should be. Uh, that, that, that this old man is gone. He's dead. We have in its place the new man. Not a perfect man, but a sanctified man, a saint who lives under the control of the spirit and who is thus enabled to struggle with and progressively eradicate the remnants of sin. Okay. So hopefully, you know, and, and again, that this is, this is so critical to us because it, it really is the backbone, the foundation of what we try and do week in, week out in church. 
we're trying to edify one another and, and, and prod each other on to good works. And why can we do this? And why can we sometimes do it successfully? Well, because we're new creatures in Christ and, and we can never lose sight of the fact that we're new creatures in Christ. And the people in our church are new creatures in Christ and they're advancing in holiness. And we, we, we do our part every Sunday to encourage that. And so we're advancing here, uh, the holiness and sanctification of those around us. Okay. Any, any final thoughts here on initial sanctification, definitive sanctification? Okay. Well, we have time here to start this next section here. Um, as uh, we started the session here tonight, the question here, what does regeneration cause us to do? What's the result of regeneration? And the first answer that we got, Sharon gave to us, was, well, we repent. And she's right. Uh, because the new nature, the new man, is a believer and he is a repenter. Now, I, you know, we, we tend to think of, uh, of a Christian as a believer. It doesn't really cross our minds too often to talk about a believer, a, a, a Christian as a repenter, but there's really no reason to, to, to shrink back from that. We're as much believers as we are repenters. And so this is the immediate response of the regenerate man. The new man is a believer. So, you know, some, sometimes the question is asked, okay, so, how quickly does one believe after he has been regenerated? And it's not a, a matter of time. They're simultaneous. When God creates a new man, he creates a believer. Okay. And belief, faith is as much a disposition as it is a set of words or actions. Okay. So, uh, so when, when God makes me new, that is what he makes me. He makes me into a believer. He makes me into a repenter. And so the, uh, so the response is immediate. And both of those terms, faith and repentance, are subsumed under this umbrella term, uh, which we call here conversion. So it subsumes here repentance, faith, and confession in its scope. It is, I say here, the initial expression of the conscious life of a regenerate sinner whereby he decisively turns from sin and toward God for the expiation and forgiveness of sins. Okay, So because we are new creatures, we immediately do new things. And the first new thing that we do is turn to God in faith and repentance and submission to him. Okay, So uh, some, some terms here, uh, repent, return, that your sins may be wiped away. Uh, God raised his servant up, sent him to bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. You should turn from these vain things and turn to a living God. And notice that the, both of those elements are there, turning from and turning to. Uh, and we'll talk about that specifically under repentance here. You're converting. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness and to the light, from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified. First Thessalonians 1, you turned from God, from idols, to serve the living and true God. Isaiah 55, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, turn to the Lord, so that he will have compassion on him and to our God who will abundantly 
pardon. Okay. And so this, this idea of conversion is more than just a mental exercise where, you know, where, where we, where we use words here, but it's actually a turning of the whole person. Uh, it's, it's, it's not just, it's not just a new set of words that come out of your mouth. That's where perhaps people get a little bit confused, uh, in the, uh, in, in this, in the salvation event here. It's not the words. It's the turning. Okay. You know, it's oftentimes, you know, the question was asked, you know, you know, so, you know, some, you know, some, some, some preacher preaches a good sermon on, on uh, salvation. Then he gives an invitation and then you struggle and then he asks you to raise your hand and come forward. And, and then you get tucked back into the, uh, into the, into the, into the dim room and, and you say a prayer. When were, when were you saved? Well, probably not when you said the prayer. You know, it was, you've turned and you've made that move towards God. You repented, you converted. Okay. Um, and it probably happened when you were still back in your seat, right? Okay. Um, and we have to recognize that that is what convert, that's what conversion is. It's not a, it's a, not a matter of saying specific words, but rather it's a, it's a, it's a change of, of, of mind and will towards sin and toward God. Okay. Now, you, now the question here, if, if confession and forgiveness occur, and it's sort of a, another question here, okay, so why do we continue to confess sins? Why do we encourage believers to continue to confess sins and seek forgiveness from God if, in fact, he did that once for all? It's been a question over the years. Uh, it's come up in a number of contexts, and, and really, ultimately, I think one of the... Uh, one of the first blows to Northland Baptist Bible College when it fell apart was a, a major confusion on this issue. I don't know if I'm going to say this is the cause of their collapse here, but it's one of them. Um, and the idea here is, okay, what, if in fact, when we confessed our sins for the first time and received forgiveness and we receive from Jesus Christ full pardon, why then are we do we invite Christians to continue to confess our sins? Of course, first John one nine is our sort of our classic go-to text. Uh, if we don't sin, you know, if, if we think we have no sin, uh, then we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we do confess our sins regularly, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so there's this expectation in John that we should repeatedly and, and, and constantly be repenting. Uh, before God asking forgiveness. So, so what is going on here? Well, confession, I say here, is the act of admitting, conceding, or claiming something. It's properly a condition of salvation. Okay. In order to be justified, you need to confess. Uh, confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says. So we have to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So confession is, is, a, is an essential element of our conversion. We must confess our sins. However, confession of sin, that is admitting, admitting and conceding error, is properly the activity of believers as well. And in fact, if you don't have a habit of confessing and repenting on a regular basis, this betrays very serious problem of spiritual pride. More difficult, though, is this idea of forgiveness, which stands in Scripture 
sometimes as the once for all expiation of sins. You know, we pray to God and he takes away our sins forever. It's, you know, as far as the East is from the West, all of our sins have been removed from us, right? That's, that's, that's the forgiveness that we receive at salvation. And one might argue that once his full and final forgiveness has been secured, then there's no more to be had. And to seek it would be to deny the sufficiency of what Christ has done. However, scripture is very clear that forgiveness is available for believers who sin after salvation. And we should routinely seek it from God. It is proper instead to seek forgiveness in those contexts as something less than absolute absolution of sin's eternal penalties. Rather, forgiveness in this case should be viewed in those contexts as a release from one or more of the temporal consequences of sin, which can and still do accrue to true believers. It's kind of like, you know, you have a, you have your, uh, you have a, you're married, you've got a spouse and you do something to offend and you say, I'm sorry. Well, Hopefully that's not the first time you, that's not the only time you say, I'm sorry. And will you forgive me? In fact, you might have to do this multiple times for the same thing, you know, dozens of times over the course of your marriage. And you should because there are, there are, there is damage done to a relationship that needs to be restored. And the same thing occurs with, uh, with our, with our God, uh, with, with our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, we offend, we bruise. And uh, it is it is appropriate and, in fact, necessary for Christians to continue to confess our sins, not only to Christ, but also to one another and so fulfill the law of Christ. So it's a it's a reminder uh, that uh, this is that when 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 we are converted, uh, when we are made new and we become believers and we become repenters, this is an iterative activity, not a once for all event. And so hopefully this is a reminder to us to constantly be aware of the fact that we need to be doing this uh, within the life of the church and also in our in our private conversations uh, with our God. Questions on that? Questions on conversion? Well, we're sort of at a breaking point here. I've got two minutes left, but I'll, I'll let you go here. Next time we'll stop, talk about the two major aspects of conversion, repentance and faith. And then uh, we'll move to the great, uh, that grand discussion of justification next time. Okay. Uh, so we will look forward to seeing you next week. Same station here and same place and time. Okay. Thanks. Thanks folks for coming, coming to a class tonight.